So I would argue that the Bible is not set up to be a source for step-by-step guidance on dating, relationships, and marriage. Uh, and we'll get to the piece in just a little bit. We'll talk about yeah. the Bible when it comes to sex and sexuality. Um, so we'll hold off on that part. But, yeah. you know, how the ancients courted and matched, were matched in marriage is was a highly patriarchal society that yeah. does not at all match the 21st century. So, you know, first, do you recognize the limitations of going to the Bible for a complete source of wisdom on these types of topics? And second, what do you think the Bible does actually have to say about dating and relationships and marriage? This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Kat Harris. She's the host of the Refined Collective Podcast and an online educator. She's the author of a new book, Sexless in the City. Kat, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. I'm excited to connect with you and just hopefully have some good and honest conversations today. Oh, it'll be honest. I promise that. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, you know, for those that aren't familiar with you, uh, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Kat Harris and I run an online platform called the refined woman and oh my goodness, it has been many things over the years, everything from a style blog to just writing or sharing my favorite things. And really in the last few years, it's really become a space where I talk a lot about sexuality, singleness, 
spirituality, theology, and really I've kind of noticed one of my things is if there's an elephant in the room, I want to talk about it. And I love taking different topics within culture and the church and adding nuance and teasing them out. Um, i.e. like unpacking purity culture or unpacking gender roles or what does it mean to be a woman in today's culture? What does it mean to be a woman in the church? Is Jesus a feminist? And so really my heart is to ask hard questions, not for the sake of just stirring the pot, although I can do that, but just saying, Hey guys, let's have some real conversations. And what is it that we really believe here? What is God's invitation to humanity collectively and individually? And is it possible that we've veered off course, uh, through Christian culture? And so I have a weekly podcast called the refined collective, where I talk about a lot of this stuff. And then, yeah, like you said, my, I have a book, I think you said <laughs> I have a book called Sexless in the City. And it's all about my experience growing up in conservative evangelical culture and learning, you know, a really strict set of rules about my body, modesty, the way I dressed, what does it mean, what it means to be a woman, what it means to date, and obviously saving sex until marriage, all that good stuff. And I never really questioned any of those narratives because I just trusted my pastors. I trusted they're telling me the truth. And it really wasn't until I moved to New York city about eight years ago and was navigating the dating scene in New York and online dating and all that stuff where I realized, okay, well, first of all, it's a lot harder to keep my pants on when I'm dating and enjoying myself. And really I kind of got to a crossroads where I was wondering, gosh, I don't really know why I'm not having sex outside of because someone somewhere told me the Bible says so. And I don't really actually even know what the Bible says. So the book is my journey of really exploring scripture, exploring science, theology, my personal experience and asking just thousands of people what their experiences are and all the above. So, yeah, so it's a little bit about like who I am and what I'm up to and yeah. We'll get to the book uh, yeah. at great length here uh, momentarily. Yeah. So you've been in New York for eight years. Where are you from originally? Yeah, so I am from Dallas, Texas. So yeah, right, right there, right there in the Bible Belt. <laughs> I was a Bible major in college. I was an athlete my whole life. I played tennis and post-college, I uh, about two weeks after I graduated college, I moved to Southern California to work in the nonprofit world and then slowly transitioned my way into the photography world. And I've been a full-time photographer as well for the last 15 years. So kind of have these like two different worlds where people who know me from more the refined woman and my book and all that stuff, they're like, you're a photographer. <laughs> and in my photography world, they're like, wait, you have a podcast. What is it about photography? I'm like, uh, it's not, <laughs> I don't know if you want to know what it's about, but get ready for a mouthful. 
Well, let's uh, let's take some time to to dig into the book. Uh, you said, you know, the name of the book is Sexless in the City. This is a journey through some difficult questions about dating and sexuality and so much more. You wrote, amid a painfully awkward and messy Christian dating culture, navigating my own sexual desires has felt both lonely and wildly confusing. Yeah. So what led you to write about the topics that most churches try to avoid like the plague? Yeah, well, I mean... Gosh, I find, I found myself, this was okay. I just turned 36. So about eight. So yeah. So when I was about 28 years old, I was new to New York city. I dated more in one year than I had in a whole decade. And kind of, like I said, I never really questioned, you know, do I, do I save sex for marriage or not? Like, what do I do physically or not do physically and dating relationships primarily because I just didn't date a lot. And so I was on a very high horse about my virginity and what I believed and, you know, just judging everyone else around me that was doing things that I thought were sinful. And then there I was living in New York and dating for really dating around for the first time in my whole life and realizing, oh my gosh, it's a lot harder not to have sex than I thought it was. And I, on the heels of a particular breakup with this guy that I was just head over heels for, I just realized like, I have actually no idea why I'm not having sex outside of, I, this is like the Christian expectation. And I realized I had no sort of internal, internal conviction. It was okay. This is what good Christian boys and girls do. So I was very externally motivated when it came to my sexual ethic and with most things to be, to experience sustainable transformation, it has to be an inside out job. And I didn't realize for very many years that I was just really adhering to a set of rules and scripts offered to me by evangelical culture and purity culture and I really didn't have any sort of, well, what do I believe? And is that true? And does the Bible really say that? So before it was a book, it was just my life. It was me going on a journey to research every single verse in the Bible that talked about sex. I wanted to figure out what I believed. I wanted to figure out for myself, what does the Bible actually say about this stuff? And does God have, does God have a heart? For sex is there like what what is what's the message here outside of this what I experienced to be a pretty shaming sexual ethic that was offered to me by most of the church and so I I went on a journey and started asking really hard questions and I honestly thought it would be an hour long quiet time of me googling what does the bible say about sex and then finding my answer and then I blinked and five years had gone by and I was still researching and asking questions. And the more I researched, a couple things came up for me. I realized there was some good content out there about like sexuality and theology and sexuality and our bodies and our relationship with God. And I noticed a pattern that most all, almost all of that content came from men and I love men. I think men are awesome, <laughs> but there was a real lack of the female voice 
within Christianity as it pertains to a lot of things, but as it pertains to dating and sexuality and all of that good stuff. And so I was like, man, not only is there no one, I couldn't find anyone that was actually, you know, living this out in like mid twenties, thirties, online dating in a modern culture. And I noticed most of the content that I read was also written by men that got married super, super young, 19, 20, 21, like right out of college. And I just felt like, man, maybe not everything you're, you're sharing is, is BS. Like there's some good stuff in here, but there, I just felt like there was no empathy for, for what I was going through. And I went to multiple churches that said online dating is sinful. It means you're not trusting God. And yet here I am in you know, 2019. And it's like, well, if you even want to go on a date, you better have a dating app. And how, why are we saying that that's sinful? So it was a lot of me just realizing I, I want to, I want to write the book that I didn't have access to when I was asking really hard questions. I wanted to write from the female perspective. And, and then lastly, if I can kind of so boldly go there, I was really tired of hearing male pastors tell me what I could or could or couldn't do sexually or physically in dating when they themselves were not living, um, living the message that they are preaching. And mm. I feel like we're living in a time where <clears throat> evangelical pastor after evangelical pastor is being exposed for sexual infidelity or sexual morality or any number of things. And I just felt like, you know what? I don't want to, I don't like, you've kind of lost credibility to me. I don't really want to hear from you. I would like to hear from someone who's actually walking through it. So that's a very long-winded response as to why I wrote my book. (laughs) (laughs) So, you you know, you're a millennial, uh, which means uh, you grew up in the evangelical tradition. You experienced the many campaigns of True Love Waits, Why Mm -hmm. is Dating Goodbye, and Purity Culture. Um, Why do you think sexual purity was such a huge emphasis in our church upbringing? Mm, That's a really good question. I think, well, you know, we think of, I I mean, the, my quick answer to that is control. I think control and, you know, the purity culture really came alive and thriving in the nineties and early two thousands. So we were on the heels of the, the AIDS crisis in the eighties and we're, we're on the, we're on the precipice of, okay, wow. Like we've are as a country, as a world, as a nation, we've experienced this AIDS crisis and how do we get our young people not to have sex? And so my perspective is that the purity culture is an evangelical mark of evangelical marketing campaign to get, to get young people not to have sex. And I think it was also a pushback to, um, things like Planned Parenthood or um, like contraception, all this stuff it, it, that kids were learning about in culture or in school, the Christian response to that was an abstinence only, um, basically an abstinence only sex set. It was like, basically just don't have sex and then wait until you get married and then God's going to bless your sex life. And 
and I'll be, I'll be clear as I actually still am choosing to wait until marriage to have sex, but it's for very, very different reasons than the reasons I was given growing up in Christian culture. So I think a large part of it was like church creating a set of rules so that we would know who is, who has a seat at the table and who doesn't. I, I think that Christianity unfortunately has become largely about, you know, are you having sex before marriage or not? Who are you having sex with? Who are you attracted to? Are you drinking alcohol? <laughs> who are you voting for? And so I think something that just is so painful is such a painful experience for me. And I know millions of people right now is it just seems like as a church, we have a blueprint that's very broken and very flawed where it's focus is external behavior modification, as opposed to in a relationship with Jesus that leads to internal transformation. And, um, I think that for whatever reason, sex is, it's like, it's like, okay, it's not Jesus alone equals salvation. It's like Jesus plus virginity equals salvation. And I think a huge reason why that is, is because I think we all worship sex. I think the church worships sex just as much as culture does. And our emphasis on whether you, whether or not you have a seat at the table based off your virginity or whether you're not, you're having sex outside of marriage is proof just how much in the church we worship sex. You know, you talked about this um, earlier, you know, listening to uh, white male evangelicals teach you about sex is, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's a lot to unpack there, but, you know, maybe, maybe to turn our attention to, you know, what do you think about these movements uh, and the message coming so overwhelmingly from, from white males what kind of impact do you think that's had on, you know, a toxic understanding of genders? Yeah, man. Oh, I think so many things. I think, you know, I, we all suffer when, when women are kept out of this decision-making rooms, we all suffer. I mean, the UN came out with an incredible document. Oh gosh, it's probably been like eight or so years ago now about how when women are involved in conflict resolution or peace treaties, they, the, the peace lasts longer. I think that we all suffer when women are kept out of the decision-making rooms. And I think what has also happened is we get a one dimensional perspective or experience of sexuality. And we, we obviously get the male dominated experience. And that's, I think we, I just think we need both. I'm not saying that the male experience is like wrong or bad, but I think what's happened is as there's been a lot of like, as a lot of the dialogue has been dominated by the male voice in Christian culture, this is where we get ideas like modesty. And I have a chapter in my book called Modest is Hottest, a really big evangelical singer songwriter just made a music video on YouTube that has now been taken down called modest is hottest. And the whole emphasis is on women needing to cover their bodies so that men don't sin sexually. And I think that right there is the perfect example of what happens when there's only one voice 
one gender speaking into the sexual experience. So what do we learn when we hear things like women need to cover their bodies and that is being given from the male perspective. I think, I think there's beliefs underneath the narratives. And I think the beliefs there that at least I was given and a lot of the women that I lead and speak to are that as a woman, I, my, I am hypersexual just for existing. Like my body is just innately, like I'm just a Jezebel and I can't even help it. And so because of that, my body is like, so risque, I, I need to cover it. And the, uh, another narrative that happens in that is that we believe that men are more sexual than women. We have this belief that men just can't help themselves. They're so visual. They're so impacted by what they see. They're just wired so differently than us women that they ultimately can't take responsibility for the sexual space they're taking up in the world. So then women need to cover their bodies so that they don't sin. And I'm not saying any of this to say like, well, I should be able to wear whatever I want whenever I want to wear it. Like I'm going to wear nipple tassels when I preach on a Sunday. No, I'm not saying that. I think there, I think context and heart is so important when we talk about the clothes we wear for men and women. But when we have a one dimensional approach to talking about sexuality, I think what has happened is we've weaponized and demonized the female body. And then we've also, we've, we also, we, what's the word I'm looking for? We treat men like they're less than. And I just feel like, no, I actually believe that men and women are both created in the image of God and men have so much capacity to take ownership for the space they're taking up in the world. Like men, boys won't just be boys. I believe that God, I believe that God created men with so much more dignity than them just being a victim to their sexuality. And so I think what's happened with like having primarily the male voice speak into, um, into this conversation is that women are suffering and also men are suffering. Men are suffering because we're saying that men are less than the God image, that men are actually not as good as women, that women are just so much, we're able to restrain ourselves so much more. And that's just a narrative that feels when I go to scripture, it seems really out of alignment with that. And my question is, how do we have a conversation and dialogue that honors the God image in both men and women? Like, okay, if men are more visual, like what is it to have a, an honoring conversation as opposed to really not having any nuance, but saying like, women, you just got to cover your bodies so that like an entire gender, the, an entire gender won't sin. And then if they sin, then you're the cause of that. Um, I just think there's, there's so many painful, painful experiences in that. And then if we zoom out from there, I have to ask the question who suffers and who benefits from those teachings. Well, if men are the ones that are in power, largely in the church and and the one that are able to really control that narrative, then really, if we're talking about like who's suffering and who's being protected, the the people in power are being protected by a lot of this conversation and the more vulnerable who would be the women in this scenario are hurting. And that doesn't seem to be in alignment with 
how Jesus approached life and people. Jesus seemed to always move towards not the people in power, but those who were hurting and oppressed and really restoring balance to community. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Louisville's Kentucky's annual Festival of Faith will be held November 18th to the 20th. BSK will play a key role in the conference as a sponsor, and Dr. Louis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, will lead a session entitled Black Faith's Encounter with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism on Friday, November the 19th at 10 a.m. Join us for this event via live stream by visiting festivaloffaiths.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So, I would argue that the Bible is not set up to be a source for step-by-step guidance on mm. dating relationships and, and marriage. Uh, and we'll get to a piece in just a little bit. We'll talk about yeah. the Bible when it comes to sex and sexuality. Um, so we'll hold off on that part, but yeah. you know, how the ancients courted and matched were matched in marriage as was a highly patriarchal society that yeah. does not at all match the 21st century. So you know, first, do you recognize the limitations of going to the Bible for a complete source of wisdom on these types of topics? And second, what do you think the Bible does actually have to say about dating and relationships and marriage? Yeah. So to your first question, do I recognize the limitations? Totally. I mean, dating Dating did not exist when scripture was written. Dating, dating as we know it today is about a hundred years old. If that it was only legal for women to get a divorce in America starting in the seventies. Like, so yes, of course, what we experience today is it's almost incomparable as to what we experience in scripture. Um, marriages were primarily arranged. And in, especially we think of, you know, first century AD, most marriages were contracts and it was a business contract between families. And so, yeah, there's so much, there's so much difference. And so, yeah, I can never really say like, is the Bible going to tell me if online dating is a sin or not? Like, no, it's not. Uh, But I do think that there, we can, we can gain wisdom and even just, I don't know if like best practices is the right word, but I do think scripture and the Bible does have a lot to offer. And I think so much of what that conversation comes down to is like, what's, what's the heart with which I'm approaching anything, you know, what's my heart with which I approach Netflix 
What's my heart with which I approach Instagram? Am I numbing out? Am I not wanting to do my work? Am I procrastinating? Am I self-sabotaging? Am I living in a fantasy world? Then maybe an Instagram scroll isn't going to be healthy for me. Um, so I think when I approached the scripture, at least for me in this journey, I was, I first wanted to know what did the Bible say about sex and was there anything compelling and was there anything relevant to my experience today as a person living in a modern culture? And I did find a lot of things that did feel compelling to me from searching the scriptures and, you know, I can kind of, I don't know what's like helpful. Do you want me to share a couple of a couple of those things that I found or sure. yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the things that was so helpful for me was really seeing in scripture that God is not afraid of sex, that God is not afraid of desire, that God is not afraid of pleasure. All of those things are God created. When we see God breathing and exhaling creation into existence and he and God calls everything good. And then God gets to humanity and does something distinct and breathes the God image into humans and doesn't just say they're good, but very good. And so for there, it's like, okay, what's the text saying? And what's the text not saying as a Christian, I've learned that my body was bad and I needed to hide it. And that my sexuality is a switch that needs to be shut off and turned off and don't even think about it until a wedding ring gets on my finger and I can have all the sex I want when I'm married. And yet I look at that Genesis one text and, you know, it doesn't say, okay, God breathes a breath of life into humanity and our brains are very good or my intellect is very good, or my spirit is really good. And my spiritual life matters, but anything that has to do with my body or flesh is bad. That's just not what the text says at all. It just says God created humanity and let us make humans in our image and humans are very good. And what that showed me first and foremost was that God creates holistically. We're not compartmentalized beings. So that means that my spirit isn't better than my body. And the more research I did, I found that's actually not Christian or Bible or God theology at all. That's rooted in Gnostic dualism. So how did that get into, how did that get into my theology? So I felt like a relief when I experienced, when I found that in the scripture, oh, like God doesn't demonize my sexual desire. So why am I? And then going through even to the new Testament, finding scriptures that said that my body is a house for the Holy. It's a temple for the Holy spirit. Well, God doesn't live in bad things or dirty things or gross things or disgusting things. So there must be something like really beautiful and holy and even reflective of the God image within my body and not just like my eyes, but also my reproductive organs. And also God must not be surprised when a man experiences arousal and gets an erection. Like it's like all of that was God's idea. And so for me, that felt so freeing to be like, wow, actually I feel like I was given this subtle, but very distinct message in Christian culture that my body was bad, sexual desires, gross, and like shut it all down. 
but that doesn't seem to be my experience of the God of the Bible. Um, and then I think as a woman, something that felt so powerful to me was reading through song of Solomon in the old Testament, which is the, of, of such an erotic book that most Jewish instructors wouldn't let their students read it until they came of age. There were even some Jewish teachers that wouldn't let their pupils read it until they were 30 years old. That's how erotic and, and provocative this book was and is. And reading through that book as a woman, you know, now in my thirties, I see this book starts off with the bride telling her groom how she wants to experience pleasure in the bedroom. And that felt mind blowing to me because as a Christian woman, I'd always been taught, well, men are more sexual than women. And I need, I just need to do my wifely duty because, you know, Ephesians five says, I just need to submit to my husband. So I need to keep his belly full in the kitchen and him, his, him pleased in the bedroom. Yet we have this ancient text that starts with the woman saying, let him give, let him give me the, the kisses of his mouth and his love is better than wine and come to my garden and feast. Like this is an empowered woman who knows that pleasure is a beautiful thing is not ashamed of it and is inviting her partner to do very specific sexual things to her. That's beautiful, informed and enthusiastic consent. And so what I learned going through Song of Solomon was how there's like pleasure is, is beautiful and God created and sex isn't just for procreation. And there's like men and women are both sexual and both get to experience pleasure. It's not just this one-sided womanly duty. Um, cause I think there's also this narrative that says that women don't like sex as much as men do. And I mean, if you ask any of my girlfriends, all my girlfriends, like what, I don't, that's not true at all. So I think when I went to the scriptures, yeah, I didn't find specific things of like, okay, so can I touch his butt or like, how many dates in before we do this physical experience, but I did find a guy, I did find a message that was really freeing and ex- way more expansive than I thought possible. And, um, I also did find scriptures that talked about avoiding or abstaining from sexual activity outside of marriage, which was, I think important for me because I just was, very cynical that I even said anything like that. Um, so that was helpful for me. I can keep going, but I'll, I'll give it a minute to breathe and see if you have anything you want to say or any questions or. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the challenges is as we look at, you know, the contextual nature of scripture is, Mm -hmm. you know, we're writing at a different time Mm -hmm. and, and there's a certain, there's a certain tension and balance when it comes to understanding the cultural context and how that's influencing the writer and how that influences us, you know, but the writers, when they're writing about sexuality are, are writing in a completely different type of environment. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you think about, you know, people getting married in their early teenage years, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you and I in our, you know, mid to later thirties would be considered to be old people, you know, in, in oh, biblical yeah. days, you know, so 
the common practices of, you know, sexual drive and when that begins within um, the human pubescent system, you know, is much earlier, you know, and so that that drive uh, and those desires and how that was quenched through early marriage is, is, is part of the conversation, certainly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, the biblical writers are not thinking about, you know, anybody who's in their mid to late 30s that, you know, are um, not necessarily married yet and trying to explore these different types of things. And so I think that's what the challenge is when it comes to looking at scripture for a step-by-step guide of sexual expression, uh, both in and, and outside of the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's it's one of those things where I think there's such a cultural challenge there, but it's yeah. it's good to go to the scriptures with some humility and to openness to learn. At the same time, we have to recognize there's some challenges there that that we can't necessarily I, I want to be careful and say I'm not saying can't find all the answers we need um, but there's the nature by which it's written and what it's for I think mm-hmm. is different than than what we want we want a manual and it's not always a manual it's about being led by the spirit of God right learning from the examples of others you know yeah absolutely yeah. and I think you know to your point one of the things that was actually really it was kind of scary when I found out, but now I think it's really freeing is, you know, it's the new Testament has this repeated invitation to flee from sexual activity outside of marriage. And that is the flee from sexual morality, flee from fornication. And the Greek word there is porneia and porneia is this word that largely refers to, refers to like rape and pedophilia and adultery. And it's also this general term that can mean a lot of different things. And if that is the primary, if those are the primary texts that we're using to convince young people not to have sex until marriage, well, then there's a lot of other questions that I have there. (laughs) Like, for instance, what is sex? how are we defining sex and where do we get that definition? I always was taught or assumed that vaginal penetration was sex. And so as long as I'm not doing that, then I'm doing like what God wants me to do. And I'm doing what the church wants me to do. But what if, what if you identify as LGBTQ plus do heterosexuals have a monopoly on virginity What if your partner is impotent and are you unable to have a sex life? What if you're one of the 75% of women who can only experience climax or pleasure externally? Can you not have a good sex life? I think what for me, as I went to the text, what was hard and freeing is that, oh, the text doesn't say like, to not put this one piece in this one piece of this other person's body. It's saying to, it's saying to flee from sexual activity. And so is it possible that someone, there are people who love God and are seeking Jesus and the Holy spirit and us land on different parts of what we believe is permissible for us sexually pre and post marriage. Like, I feel like that's a hard thing to say out loud but like, I think that I, my physical boundaries in dating might be different from someone else's. 
And does that just mean we all get a hall pass to, you know, to do whatever we want? Like, no, I don't think so. I think there is like some real wisdom and like being really mindful in how we walk this stuff out. But it might mean that different people have different boundaries. And do we have space for that? Do we have space for nuance? Do we have space for not being the morality police in everybody's lives? Like, do we have space for people to be fumbling their way forward sexually, (laughs) just like we fumble our way forward in every other area of our life? Like I, I would never get like called out or most likely not get called out or like lose speaking jobs. If someone found out that I gossiped one day, (laughs) but it's like, we view how we view sex and dating and physical boundaries in the church is it's like, man, if you're not doing it exactly this way, then you're, you're out of you're you definitely can't be a leader. You definitely won't have a voice, but maybe you can't even serve here. And I mean, I've had friends get fired from the church that they worked at for having a sleepover with their boyfriend, even though they weren't having sex. And I've spoken at conferences where a very well-known Christian speaker got up there who got married when she was 17 or 18 and in front of thousands of young people said, if you even hold hands with a person who's not your husband, you're committing sin and adultery. And I'm like, that's problematic. What is it to teach people how to seek God and seek wisdom and seek wholeness in their relationships and in every area of our lives? as opposed to like giving everyone a script of do's and don'ts. I think it's, I think it's hard, but I think we're doing ourselves such a disservice when we just are giving a list of do's and don'ts. It's much harder to teach people how to seek God. It's much easier to give people a list of do's and don'ts that we can manage externally to make sure that they're in good standing. So, you know, I don't want people to misunderstand the point I'm about to make to get to this question. You know, however, we can see the culture interpretive lens necessary to understand what Paul is trying to write about when he refers to promiscuity or orgies and the like. I mean, also, like when you think about Paul, like just how many ancient orgies were going on that he had to address it in several of his letters. Um, I'd love to take a time machine to figure out what was going on there, but And since biblical interpretation can be a challenge, it's sometimes best to lean on what Jesus has to say about such matters. But Mm -hmm. um, Jesus doesn't have a lot to say, if anything, about sex and masturbation and other related topics. So Mm -hmm. in your investigation and your study, what what does your findings of the gospel tell you about where Jesus stands on some of these matters? Oh, man, I think what I what is, what I always find when I come to Jesus is just how much Jesus leads, leads with heart and love and acceptance and kindness and generosity and just constantly blows out of water, the cultural and religious expectations of the day. And when Jesus does that, it's always to like restore relationship and restore people to themselves and to each other and to God. And I think one of the most profound experiences for me, I didn't realize how enmeshed my virginity had come with my faith and my experience of Jesus until going through this whole journey myself. And I remember reading 
about Jesus being on the cross and the thief on the cross next to Jesus. And, you know, the thief reaches out to Jesus and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus wasn't like, well, but like, who have you been having sex with? And who are you attracted to? And have you been having sex outside of marriage? And like all this stuff? No, it was today you'll be with me in paradise. And so I think for me, a lot of this is like, how do we keep the main thing, the main thing? Like, what if we, how do we like start and end with Jesus and how do we start and end with kindness and, um, and generosity and relationship as Jesus did. I mean, Jesus was also unafraid and unapologetic about calling a spade a spade. You know, we, we see him calling out the woman at the well for, you know, living with someone who's not her husband and, and yet he's not doing that to spite her or be judgmental. He's just saying like, Hey, I have like a, I'm, I have like a different way. Like you're looking for identity and something that's actually not bringing you identity or wholeness. Like, like what you're looking for in this relationship, you actually can only get that through me. And I think that's beautiful. So, so yeah, like Jesus isn't talking about masturbation or sex or a lot of that stuff. But I think what Jesus does do well, it just does what Jesus did was lead with relationship and was just hell bent on people knowing that his love is for, for all people. And that doorway is open for any of us. And so even just back to the conversation today, I think what's hard about a lot of this stuff is what's happened in the church is we've made things that aren't the main thing, the main thing, like sex, isn't the main thing masturbation isn't the main thing. Like now do these things matter? Yeah, totally. But they're not the main thing. And so what is it for us to make the main thing, the main thing? And without sounding like trivial or trite, I think something in this whole process that I've tried to constantly go back to is like, man, how do we stay connected to the heart of God? How do I stay connected to the heart of Jesus? And how do, how do I, how do we not get so caught up in, am I doing all the right things? Because the reality is that like, none of us are like, that's why we, that's why we need Jesus. Right. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but, um, I think when I turn to Jesus, it's like, okay, like Jesus just makes it about like Jesus and love and relationship and helping and serving and loving the poor and the oppressed and not being a morale, a morality police. If anything, he was calling out the morality police, which would be the religious elite. Right. So, you know, we've, we've talked about this in, in so many different ways that mm-hmm. especially the, the culture that we grew up in and the campaigns we experienced that the church does not talk about sex and sexuality well so how do we develop a better culture in the church to discuss and these things but also to do spiritual formation around them yeah yeah i think one of the first things is to normalize conversations about sex no like normalize sexual desire normalize talking about masturbation i mean 
Masturbation is the number one thing that women come to me to talk about. And yet no one wants to even say the word out loud. The word alone can feel so shame inducing to so many people. And so I think first things first, how do we start talking and normalizing sex and body parts from a very young age within our home, with our children, talking about our body parts and, and just really normalizing. All right. Yeah. Like God created us. And part of what that means is that we're a sexual, we're sexual beings. So what does that look like? I think so much of this is giving, creating safe space to have conversations about this stuff without judgment, without shame. I think one of the most natural human experiences in life is desire or desire for sex, desire for connection, desire for intimacy, arousal, pleasure, like all of those are such real human experiences. So how can we normalize that to remove the shame? Cause I think until we remove the shame and, 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 and when we have shame, we want to keep things hidden and isolated and shame removes us from relationship to ourselves and God and others. And so we have got to model talking about this, whether it's talking about this stuff from the pulpit maybe even more importantly, talking about it with our friends, with our community, with our families, with our kids. Um, and then also I think creating a, I think having a conversation too, like, I think this is one of the things that I see in scripture with really everything is like the physical is never really about the physical, like the physical is typically such an invitation to the spiritual, and to deeper levels. So how do we have conversations? And while we're talking about like romance or dating or sexuality and talking about, okay, it's not like a, just as like, when I am upset and tears are streaming down my cheeks, like these tears are inviting me into a deeper story of what's going on below the surface. How can that also be similar with sexual experiences with sex, with orgasms, with all of that stuff. So I think it's really giving ourselves and each other the permission to have these conversations and be mindful about them. And I also wonder what would happen and what would shift in the conversation with like God and sex and all of that stuff. If we made a huge priority to teaching people about identity and worth coming from the inside out. And I bring that up because one of the books that I read in my research is by a Jewish feminist, Wendy Shalit, and her book is called A Return to Modesty. And one thing that she says as a feminist, she says that her biggest charge as a feminist is to encourage women to not be dressed scantily clad or to save sex if not for marriage, for like very, very committed relationships. And her reasoning why is she said her argument is that when people know their worth from the inside out, they typically feel less inclined to have sex with strangers or go out with people who treat them poorly. And so I think so much of what we've been taught by the church is like, I'm just a total piece of crap. <laughs> And I am just like, just the worst thing in human being ever. And 
Like I am just, you know, nothing. I everything that I do is a filthy rag and I just like need Jesus so much. And I'm like, yes, is it possible that I need Jesus and that I'm also not a piece of crap? Cause when we're teaching people that they're terrible, we're really disregarding so much of the scripture. For example, this, the God story starts in chapter one, where it says that we're very good. The God story is Psalm 139 that says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And so how can we teach our children and each other that, Hey, you're not a piece of crap. You are so worthy. And from a place of worthiness, how can we talk about things like consent or physical boundaries and dating? Um, so I would love to know your thoughts on this. I know you're interviewing me, um, but those are just a couple of my thoughts as normalizing, normalizing conversations about sex and desire and having those conversations at home with our kids and with our families and our communities. And then two, like really teaching this idea that the physical is never really just about the physical and three, that I am worthy. And when I know that I'm worthy, I walk differently through the world and I want different things. I mean, I look back to myself in my early twenties. I mean, I dated guys that treated me like trash, but it was because I thought I was a piece of trash. It was only when I started really doing deep work of therapy and working through what does the Bible really say about who I am as a human? I was like, wow, actually like I am pretty incredible <laughs> because God made me. And that made so much of the poor treatment I was receiving from men so unattractive. And so I'm, I would be very curious if we started there hmm. as opposed to like kids, just like, don't talk about sex. Don't think about sex. Don't think about thinking about having sex until you get that diamond ring on your finger. And, and like well, that, we all know that that didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. It's not working. We're experiencing a massive fallout because of that. So. Well, if you want to stay connected with Kat, visit her website, therefinedwoman.com. The book is Sexless in the City, and you can purchase it wherever books are sold. Uh, Kat, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your willingness to lead a transparent conversation about who we are and how our sexuality is deeply connected to our identity as spiritual and physical creatures. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been such an honor. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net 
backslash podcast support.